It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, go to ellerslie.com. So this is episode three in my series uh, entitled Life and Leadership Lessons from Teddy Roosevelt. And I'm doing these all in one night, these first four episodes. It'll be a a 12-episode series, but these first four, I'm doing them all in one event. It's like a Daily Thunder event, and I'm going to have two more of these, and so I'm going to cluster these. This is just sort of a new thing that we're at least trying to see how this works sort of in our off-season when we don't have students here. And it's odd doing Daily Thunder at night. It it is. I know Nathan's been getting used to it on Wednesday nights. It just seems a little strange because we've had, I don't know, we're well over a thousand episodes. And so when you've done something that many repetitions, it can get a little strange uh, when you do something different. But thoroughly enjoying it. It's really fun to get into a groove. It's easier when you don't have to, you know, leave and come back and say, so where was I? Uh, And try and pick up. And so I definitely have the opportunity. This is my third episode just tonight. uh, And... They're all sort of hopefully gelling together for those of you that are are hearing this and that you're seeing a theme which has to do with as Teddy Roosevelt embraces his weakness, he starts out his life with, with chronic asthma, extreme asthma, and that's going to turn into what we would call the doctrine of his life, which is called, uh, you know, strenuous uh, labor, giving himself to the strenuous life that he defies everything that tries to keep him down. And if... The body that he lives in says, you can't do this. Then he says, I will do it. And he is constantly in an overcoming position. Part three uh, is a very, very important zone of his development. And it's called facing the unthinkable. And for a man that is legendarily happy, it's hard to imagine that this was in his life. But I think it's important for us to understand this little chapter. So I'm going to sort of set a stage for this by talking about a problem medically that was coming into view, just sort of like his asthma was sort of a new concept that the medical uh, industry was looking at and trying to figure out. There's another thing at the end of the 1800s that is becoming a significant problem, and that is something known as American nervousness. That's just what they called it. Uh, And it's the outcome of a sedentary life because everyone is sort of moving from farm life to city life. They're moving from uh, working vigorously outdoors to sitting at a desk. And it actually is impacting the health of a nation to the point where it's creating a phenomenon that people and doctors are going to call American nervousness. Isn't that just an odd thing that there would be a name for that? Because the body wasn't meant to be sedentary. So just think about how that applies to what we're talking about so far with Teddy Roosevelt. Because Teddy Roosevelt believes in the life that is strenuous, that is athletic, that is given, that is action-oriented. And so in the meantime, sort of as the exact opposite of what is taking place in his life is you see our culture moving in the exact opposite direction than where Teddy Roosevelt is going. George Beard, who's going to write a book called American Nervousness in 1881, don't you want to read that, Uh, said the Industrial Revolution, or this is actually, I have this in parentheses to give you context, the Industrial Revolution, capitalism, the explosive growth of the country, and the lack of physical exercise has unleashed a series of nervous disorders and has produced a craving for stimulants and narcotics. 
Fear of responsibility. Listen to this list. Fear of responsibility, of open places or closed places, fear of society, fear of being alone, fear of fears, fear of contamination, fear of everything, deficient mental control, lack of decision in trifling matters, and hopelessness. So these are new attributes showing up in the American society that they weren't there before. And something about this transition from farm life to city life is actually creating a problem in our culture that the medical industry is beginning to give names to and describe. George Beard in his same book, American Nervousness, says, I call this neurasthenia. It's the result of labor of the brain over the muscles where you're laboring your brain over muscle. Now, I almost feel like I just described a whole side of Christianity, where we labor our brain to have solid doctrine, but don't labor our action side. Like I've always said, we are so scared of having doctrinal heresy that we fail to see that we have behavioral heresy. The chief behavior of the Christian is to love one another. And yet we will criticize those that are a little off in their doctrine and yet the whole while oftentimes not be demonstrating love for one another and so what we don't want is the same thing the neurasthenia of the church where we start to exercise the brain over the action of love the action of the holy spirit moving in us and through us producing fruit so we have a name for this Uh, we don't call it american nervousness anymore today we call it stress And this stress, I know this is going to sound strange, was a new phenomenon in the late 19th century. I I mean, we've grown up in a world where stress is just common. And yet, when you have an agrarian culture, they weren't, they didn't have, I'm sure they had them in degrees, different things in degrees. Stress still exists. You know, a farmer needs to still pay his bills, and I'm sure he had a degree of this nervousness in his life, but this is spiked punch now. William Hazelgrove says this, the victims of American nervousness were middle-class and upper-class men overburdened with commercial and managerial responsibilities, resulting in puny neurasthenic bodies. This new American Malay that would kill thousands with heart disease and cancer had arrived, and people didn't know what to make of it. That is such an interesting assessment of the history of our country that I've never really thought through. That there was an advent when a certain behavior and thinking pattern entered into our country that had to do with the lack of action. Isn't that interesting that when you remove the action out, the strenuous life, the athleticism of the life of a human, you end up with a breakdown of the mental, spiritual and practical side of the life. So the photo negative of the neurasthenic is Teddy Roosevelt. He's the exact opposite of someone who's putting mind over body. Now he has a great mind and you'll see that that'll come out in the upcoming episodes. However, he has a weak body. And so he has to put extra effort into strengthening his body, which is going to give him a secret that is going the counter opposite direction of the culture around him. So there's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt and uh, the opposite of the neurasthenic. So the vigorous life, the solution for, well, everything. Every aspect of our life is an application of what we know to be true. 
And so if we know this to be true and we do it, well, then our life works. If we know to do something and we don't do it, it breaks down our life. The Bible says he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So the inverse of that is what Teddy Roosevelt is doing. He knows what he ought to do, otherwise he'll die, right? He, he is, has acute asthma. He has to be active. He has to engage in life. He has to overcome this. And so he puts into practice what he knows to be true in a physical sense, and he thrives. Here's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough. In other words, there's a, there's a weight, there's a nervousness in life that is chasing people that slow down. But he's saying, just keep moving. Keep doing what you know to do, and black care can't stay up with you. So the exquisite test of 1884. Remember his buffalo hunt, his bully buffalo hunt, was in 1883. This is 1884. It's the loss of the most precious things in his life all in one day on Valentine's Day of 1884. So I'll give you the backstory here just a little. While Roosevelt was working in the New York legislature, he received an urgent telegram summoning him home. His mother, Mitty, who was living with him at the time, had become sick with typhoid fever. When he arrived home in desperate concern for his mother, he discovered to his horror that his wife, new wife, Alice, had also taken a terrible turn after delivering her first child two days earlier. She had contracted Bright's disease. Elliot Roosevelt, his brother, when he walks into the house, says, there is a curse on this house. Mother is dying and Alice is dying too. George Grant, in his book, The Courage and Character of Theodore Roosevelt, said the two people dearest to him in all the world were now on the threshold of death at the same time in the same house. Teddy's first child named Alice after her mother was a mere two days old. The Roosevelt's, to Roosevelt's utter and complete shock, both his mother and his new wife died that very day, within a few hours of each other, on Valentine's Day. So we have a man, and you've already been impressed with him, and you're staring at him going, oh, I want some of that in my life. And you're like, okay, I'd like to skip this chapter. This is a hard thing to swallow. It's even a hard thing for me to process. I mean, the weight and the grief that I feel for this young Teddy Roosevelt, I, I can't even imagine what this would be like. It's not just that it happened over a period of time, one day. Valentine's Day. So Teddy Roosevelt in his journal entry on February 14th, 1884 says, the light has gone out in my life. A Roosevelt family friend said, Roosevelt was in a dazed and stunned state. William Hazelgrove said it this way, the black heart was upon Roosevelt and he knew only one type of self-medication, action, and erasure of the wound. He had lost his political career, his wife, his mother, and essentially his child, whom he had given to his sister to raise because even the baby's name pained him, Alice Lee. What possibly could have held this man up? For this wasn't the end of Teddy Roosevelt. So if I said that this happy-go-lucky guy that is saying, by God free, isn't this fun, lost his joy and lost his steam and lost his will to live because of this event, I think we could understand it in a human sense. This type of circumstance knocks the legs out of most people. Some people never recover. However, if you know the story of Teddy Roosevelt, you know that he recovers. And even though this is going to be a staggering event in his life, you're going to see him apply the same exact principles that he has been applying in the buffalo hunt to his soul in this circumstance. George Grant, so this is... 
me giving perspective, okay? I'm not going to just tell you all the details of how he worked through this because most of that is lost. All we know is that he left New York and went to the Wild West. That's what he did. Now, he doesn't write a lot about his processing of what he went through. So I can't tell you all that he went through. I can just tell you what's going to happen. And I can give you hints because I see exterior things happening. But George Grant says, by any measure, Theodore Roosevelt was a remarkable man. Before his 50th birthday, he had served as a New York state legislature, the undersecretary of the Navy, police commissioner for the city of New York, U.S. Civil Service Commissioner, the governor of the state of New York, the vice president under William McKinley, a colonel in the U.S. Army, and two terms as the president of the United States. Now, to give you perspective, I'm almost 53. This guy, before the age of 50, did all that. Suddenly, my life feels very smallish. In addition, he had run a cattle ranch in the Dakota Territory, served as a reporter and editor for several journals, newspapers, and magazines, and conducted scientific expeditions on four continents. George Grant continues, he read at least five books every week of his life and wrote nearly 50 on an astonishing array of subjects from history and biography to natural science and social criticism. He enjoyed hunting, boxing, and wrestling. He was an amateur taxidermist, botanist, ornithologist, and astronomer. He was a devoted family man who lovingly raised six children, and he enjoyed a lifelong romance with his wife. So, yes, his first wife dies. But something is going to hold this man together. Because even in the midst of it, now remember, he's going to start with acute asthma, and he knows that in his future is difficulty. He understands that. That comes with an asthmatic condition. He recognizes that, yes, he has difficulty in his future, but he knows how to appropriate it, and he knows not to let it bully him around. I'm using bully in a different term, different way there. To not allow it to intimidate him and to say, stay in your place. You need to accept the sedentary life. Instead, he goes on adventure. George Grant says, Teddy Roosevelt was hailed by supporters and rivals alike as the greatest man of the age, perhaps one of the greatest of all ages. So I'm going to give you some quotes of what people said about this life. Now, I am going to, I'm doing an odd thing in my style of delivery here, is I'm giving you an extreme moment in his life. And then I'm going to show you that it did not destroy him. And I'm doing that on purpose because that's in essence the great overall message of this man's life, that in and through difficulty comes out a greater strength. This man is not going to be debilitated because of his losses. Even though the losses are real in any of our lives, if any of you have ever gone through loss like this, you can understand how painful this is for this man. And it's not to diminish it at all. It's to say that no matter what we go through, if we have the right foundation that can be leveraged into even a greater strength in our life. So President Grover Cleveland is going to say about Teddy Roosevelt, he was one of the ablest men yet produced in human history. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge said, since Caesar, perhaps no one has attained among crowded duties and great responsibilities such high proficiency in so many separate fields of activity. Rudyard Kipling, after spending an evening with Roosevelt, said this, I curled up on the seat opposite and listened and wondered until the universe seemed to be spinning round, and Roosevelt was the spinner. 
Lord Charnwood said, no statesman for centuries has had his width of intellectual range. To be sure, no intellectual, is so tu- no intellectual has so touched the world with action. And William Jennings Bryan, who, by the way, was Roosevelt's lifelong political opponent, and this is what he says, search the annals of history, if you will. Never will you find a man more remarkable in every way than he. So what possibly could have held this man up? Now, this is, this is important. I'm bringing up this event in his life to, so you could recognize that what makes us strong in life is not the absence of challenge. It's not the absence of loss. It's not the absence of difficulty. It's the presence of Jesus Christ. When we have the foundation, then when winds and rains beat against our house, we will not fall. It does not mean we don't feel the winds and the rains. It does not mean we are immune and somehow we can go through life and say, I didn't feel that. We feel it. I remember when I was young, I used to think maybe when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't feel the cross. And I still remember this one man saying, I don't remember exactly how it came out. I just remember it. But he said that Jesus experienced the cross and every bit of it. He experienced the thirst. He experienced the pain. He experienced it. And that actually sort of scared me because I was thinking if he didn't experience it, he still went through it, but he somehow was immune to it because he's God, then maybe he can somehow make me immune to it. Because I don't want the pain in life. I don't want the thirst in life. And yet, God doesn't promise that he will remove the thirst and the hunger and the pains and the, you know, the, the gumbo mud from our life. What he says is that I will be with you always. That in the midst of that pain, I will give you a consolation. I will give you all of myself to sustain you. I will supply everything you need in that moment if you ask. What we want is the eradication of difficulty. Let's be honest. That's what we want. God, could I have a future that has no challenge? And his answer, no, because I love you. You see, if Theodore Roosevelt doesn't have the challenge, he doesn't become the man that he becomes. And neither will you become what you were supposed to be if God deletes the difficulties out of your life or preserves you from every challenge, which is why we embrace challenge as if it is the pinnacle of joy. So what possibly could have held this man up? Well, it depends on the man's foundation. What was Teddy's foundation? So... I'm going to read Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, because I'm, I'm going to give you at least a hint. Teddy was a godly man. We could say a church-going man. And he did understand the importance of both Scripture and of Christ. And even though he didn't wax long and eloquent about that very often in his life, he did give us enough to work with. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. This is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament. I know that sounds like a strange way of saying it, but this is actually what Jesus is going to read, and he's going to say in the New Testament, this is now fulfilled in your midst. It's talking about one known as the Messiah, or as we would say in the Greek, the Christos, the Christ. It's the one who is anointed. 
And so this is Jesus talking. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they shall rebuild the old ruins and they shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So I'm going to take Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. I'm going to consolidate it into key things. And I want you to recognize that if you turn to Jesus, when you walk through your difficulties, he specializes as the Christ, as the Messiah, to take that difficulty and to turn it. So it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To heal the brokenhearted. So what if you're brokenhearted? If you have a Messiah, you know that he heals the brokenhearted? He specializes in it. What else? To comfort all who mourn. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Technically, you have nothing to fear in this life. No matter what you walk through, even the difficulties... If you know that your Messiah goes before you and behind you as a front and a rear guard, and you know that he will always supply for you what you need, even in that dark hour, February 14th, 1884, if you ever walk through anything even similar or even a gradient of that, you don't need to fear it. For your God will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. Isaiah 61.4. So why is he with us? Why does he give us beauty for ashes? Why does he comfort us when we mourn? It's so that he could leverage all of that difficulty and turn it into something strong, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And these trees of righteousness, these that have been transformed by the work of the Messiah, they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Uh, can we just call them world changers? They're the ones that change the world. Ironically, it's those that needed to be comforted. Ironically, it's those who had broken hearts. Ironically, it's those that had ash. And yet God is going to work in a beautiful way to redeem all of that into a greater storyline. So Teddy Roosevelt was asked many times what he believed. And being in political office and being in a very contentious Christian culture, just like ours today, this is how he responded. It is summed up in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. That was his response. And most of us are unsatisfied with that. So I figured I would read to you, since we're studying Teddy Roosevelt, I'd read to you how firm a foundation, and I want you to realize this is what this man publicly declared over and over and over again was what he believed. So how firm a foundation by John Rippon. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? 
to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call to thee, go. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. E'en down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall sit in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Oh, that's, that's, that's good, guys. The importance of action. Both languages that are primarily used, because we do have Aramaic in the Bible, but both the Hebrew and the Greek, I call them action languages. They're all based on verbs. So the roots of all the words in the Hebrew and the roots of all the words in the Greek are all verbs. And so the way that I look at that is the Hebrew and Greek are both verb languages. Doing is the essence and expectation of the language. Action is what is expected. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. You're not supposed to just hear this. This is meant to be done, to be acted upon, to be activated in our life. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, when you don't move it to action, it actually leads to a certain cloud of deception. And I would even acknowledge that this cloud of deception has hovered over my brain at times too. Because I can intellectually understand something. I can intellectually even turn it into a message and give it to you. And the fact that I honor, that I agree with the truth, and that I even communicate the truth as it is truth does not mean I'm living it. It's a sad statement, but it's also true. Which can lead to a certain deception that I am living it because I talk about it. And it's sort of like talking about how much you love your wife, but never doing anything to show it. It's like talking about how you believe in strong, godly family, but not investing yourself to build one. You need to actually move things into action mode, and that is the critical thing that I want to drive to the surface out of this study. I don't want you to grow up just to be Teddy Roosevelt. I want you to take your asthma, as we heard in, in session one, and I want you to translate it into an inspiration to a strenuous life, to action. I want you to take your buffalo hunt that seems to drag on and on with the gumbo mud and the, uh, and the pouring rain and all the difficulty, and I want you to rejoice in it. And when you face that ash in your life and things that were even good seem to have fallen into disrepair, and you cannot comprehend how a good God would allow something like this. Your good God wants to take that ash. If you will entrust it to him, he says, I'll make beauty out of that. Will you take it to me instead of to your self-pity? And when you do that, you will see the power of your Messiah, which is why when we fix ourselves to him as a rock, 
It does not matter what comes against us, how extreme that is which is coming against us. It cannot tear us down. It only strengthens us. And that is the great hope of the believer. The watershed of death, where new life lies ahead through the crucible of aloneness. You see, in his life, he is going to suddenly be bereft of everything that is close to him. He's going to lose his mother. He's going to lose his wife. And he's going to lose his daughter in the same process. And he is going to go to the West, and he is dizzied. He can hardly even stand up straight. And what's interesting is this has happened so many times throughout history, too, is that you could call it the wilderness season, where something extreme happens, but when we go, sort of like Paul goes to Arabia, there is a formation of something extraordinary that's going to take place there. And the one known as Paul the Apostle strides out of that wilderness. Galatians 1, 15 through 18, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. The years in Arabia, technically we don't know how long that was. If it was three years or it was a shorter period of time, we just oftentimes will say three years. But I'm going to call it the elixir of the desert. This is exactly what's going to happen. He's in the badlands. Can you think of a better description? It's the wilderness. I mean, completely the wilderness. William Hazelgrove says this, Roosevelt was extremely melancholic, even morbid, viewing his life as essentially finished. So he started with a long journey into the Badlands by himself for five days. He had a rifle, a book, a blanket, an oil skin, a metal cup, some tea and salt, and dry biscuits. Roosevelt in the quicksand. If you don't move, you die. So he's all by himself, and he gets into quicksand. And what's interesting is his entire philosophy of life plays into this exact moment. Roosevelt should have died many times, and we would have never heard about him. But there's something about this man's entire being, which is action. And he knows that when asthma comes, that he must defy it. This man is in quicksand, and he doesn't stop churning his legs. He refuses to give up, and he keeps moving. I mean, I, I, it's like symbolic of his whole life at this point. He's in a situation that would bring down almost every other man on earth. And yet he will not stop moving. And somehow he gets out of the quicksand. Teddy Roosevelt, listen to this quote. Action is everything. Action, action, action. He never stopped moving. And in two years, out of the quicksand strode one of the greatest men of the past century. So when he returns from this wilderness season, he's going to shock the world. I don't care what is up ahead for any of us. I really don't. I don't. We don't need to look at it, stare at it. It doesn't matter. What we know is that our God is greater. That's what we know. 
If it's financial challenge, we have a provider. If it's health problems, we have a healer. I don't care what is up ahead. We have a Messiah, we have an anointed one, we have a Christ who will take all our ash and bring beauty out of it. And if we are mourning, he will comfort us. If we are hurt, harmed, if we have an enemy that is trying to break us, we have a God who is ready to deliver us. And that is the facts of our soul, which is when someone asks us for our doctrine, we can just say, yeah, I just, just read how firm a foundation, that's, that's enough. It actually makes sense. That's a pretty great statement. There's a lot hidden in that hymn. So Teddy Roosevelt, question number three. Have you caught the train to the badlands to meet your God in the wilderness? Have you proven him in your darkest hour? Or did you surrender to the difficulty, the pain, the trauma, and the grief? See, I can't answer that for you. This is something that is inside of each of us. You see, some of us have gone through pretty extreme challenges. We could be right in the middle of them right now. But how are you handling it? Are you willing to follow God into the wilderness when he's calling you saying, look, come to me, I'll heal you. God, I, I, I just, this is too much for me. I don't know why a good God would ever allow me to go through this. Well, would you allow a good God to heal you? Because the enemy always wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Our God will take all that the enemy means to harm us with, and he'll turn it to good. That's what we know. We don't always know where things come from, but we do know the one who will turn them all for good. So did you, get, did you surrender to the difficulty, the pain, the trauma, and the grief? Here's what I'm going to say. No matter. Are you ready to rise up and stake claim to the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus right now? You have everything you need. You have a Messiah that will turn that ash into beauty right now. Teddy Roosevelt, quote number three. So this quote is on keeping those legs churning even when in quicksand. This is a pretty fun quote. Teddy Roosevelt said, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. Never give up. Action, action, action. Keep those legs churning in faith. No, my God will not fail me. See, the enemy wants you to stop churning those legs. Give up, give up, give up, give up. Come on, you can't keep trusting this God. I will keep trusting this God. Faith is an action. Holding on to God is an action of soul. Our God will not fail us. You can take that to the bank. Father, teach us to believe, to place our action and our movement towards you. Confidence in your ability to come through in your ability to comfort, in your ability to give the consolation, in your ability to bring beauty out of ash. You are the Messiah, and we put our confidence in you. Lord, we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. If you'd like to learn more about Ellerslie, our discipleship programs, or support the ministry financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.